Well, thank you, everyone. Such a joy and such a privilege to be here with you. And uh, to Bruce and uh, Sue, thank you for just sharing your story. That was really moving and powerful. And um, I don't know, I, I think maybe I was here for that. So uh, I appreciate that. You're in for an awesome, awesome time together. And you're around some of the best people in the world. There's nothing better than being around generous people. Trust me, I come from a town that is anything but generous. <laughs> I come from a town that's all about taking. So uh, I do bring you uh, greetings from Las Vegas. There, I should start here. There are churches and Christians in Las Vegas. Um, it's relatively normal for a couple million of us that live there, uh, except for when it's not. <laughs> Remember, my wife and I were driving our minivan. We came up to a stop sign and uh, it was a billboard. Vegas is known for its billboards. And this billboard had a bunch of uh, women on it. They had bikini bottoms on and they had their backs, like a picture of just their backs. It looked as if they were topless and their hair was hanging down. And my son, as innocent as he could, at seven years old, says to his sister in the back seat of the minivan, he says, Emma, which naked girl is your favorite? Mine's the one with brown hair. And you know that moment as a dad where you think, what have I done to my family? What have I done to our, you know, our future? And so my wife turns around in a moment of parenting brilliance and she says, Ethan, we do not have favorite naked girls. <laughs> and I just remember sitting there thinking, wow, this is what it's come to. <laughs> but my wife, Lori, and I have, uh, we've been there um, over 10 years now, and uh, for us, it's a mission field, and we feel like uh, when it comes to being generous and giving back, this is what God has called us to do, and this is where he has called us to do it, and it's been the ride of our lives. And that's the thing about generosity. When you engage in that unique place where you sense God leading you to do something, and you engage with it and meet needs of others as you do it, that's the ride of your life. That's where so much joy and excitement and uh, passion all emerges together. And that's why I'm thrilled that you're here and just hope and pray for so many of you over the next two days. In fact, I know you're going to begin to hear and suss out and determine how those things come together for you in your unique life. I remember a while back I was watching The Tonight Show and uh, a comedian was on there, Louis C.K., and he was doing this little rant called, Everything's Amazing, But Nobody's Happy. And he began to talk about many of the different benefits that we have today in our society, many of the technological advances that we all experience. For instance, he talked about uh, phones. How many of you remember the rotary phone? You remember the rotary phone? I mean, I grew up with a rotary phone. And this is like a phone connected with a, a thing called a cord, you know, and you had to like stand right beside it. Remember this? And, and you hated friends that had a lot of zeros in their number, you know, because you'd dial it and it'd be like, you know, you dial it and you wait forever, right, to connect with them. That was the rotary phone. Now we can make calls from anywhere in the world. I was in Ecuador a while back and my phone just started ringing and I answered it. And uh, it was, uh, it was uh, just a buddy of mine back in Las Vegas. He's like, hey, what's up? I'm like, I didn't know, I, I, I didn't have my international data plan even on. I'm like, how are we talking? He goes, I don't know, I just called you. I'm like, I gotta hang up, bro. I can't afford this. <laughs> but it's amazing how technology just has advanced. And yet if you're like me today, if you pull your cell phone out and you hit dial on your speed dial and it doesn't connect immediately, what do we start doing? 
We're like, come on, come on. I start talking to my service provider, which is AT&T. I know them by name very well. I'm like, come on, AT&T. What are you thinking? What are you doing? And and Louis C.K. said this on The Tonight Show. He says, can you give it a minute? It's sending a signal to space and back. Can you give it a minute to send a signal to space and back? Everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Think about travel. I mean, nowadays when we talk about travel, what do we talk about? We talk about TSA, about having to sit on the tarmac for 40 minutes, about, you know, all the hassles of travel and all the frustrations related to travel. And one of the things Louis C.K. said that was so good, he says, you know, everybody who's flying on a plane should first of all stop and say, I'm, I'm flying through the air in a chair like a bird. <laughs> this is amazing, you know, like, and I'm going hundreds of miles an hour. And I have internet, and I have soda, and I have my peanuts, and all of that. And then we land, and what do we say? We're all frustrated because we're 40 minutes late. Can you believe we're 40 minutes late? And just think about that statement. You can fly from the East Coast to the West Coast in five hours. I mean, five hours. And you think about what that, that that journey used to take like 30 years, right? (laughs) You know, like. People would get horses and buggies together and all of that, and they would head out on the journey from the east to the west. Listen, people would die on that journey. Babies would be born. A whole different group of people would show up than the group of people that left. (laughs) Right? Everything's amazing today. Five hours from New York to L.A. It's amazing, and yet we're frustrated. Everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. And I think so much of it in our culture comes back to this desire and this pull in all of our hearts to just have more and more and more and to forget the words of Jesus that Todd has already shared with us in Acts where he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That word blessed is a really profound word. It has some layered meanings. I mean, at one level, the word blessed means divine favor, to have divine favor on your life. At another level, a a more crass translation of that word is happiness. It certainly doesn't mean less than happiness. I think it definitely means more than just happiness. And that's what so many of us want. And as long as we keep believing that we'll find that divine favor and contentment, that happiness plus in our life, the blessed life by getting, we're going to be frustrated. We're going to continue on that path where everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. But what happens when you pause and you step back and you realize it really is more blessed to give? It begins to open up all kinds of doors of generosity in your life. And so much of what God is doing begins to emerge. You know, I first came to faith in Jesus Christ as a 17-year-old and began the spiritual journey in my life. And I can remember the first real generosity lesson I learned was as an 18-year-old playing in a rock band in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I worked at a water park called The Beach, okay? Big living. I mean, we were eating beans and rice. We were living the rock and roll life like I had nothing. My parents were worried to death about me. And when it rained at the beach, if you got rained out, then you couldn't work. Like there was no, it was a water park, right? So it was raining a lot. We kept having days where we couldn't work. And so I remember I went to church one night 
and uh, things were really tight. This was my first kind of venturing out on my own after high school and I'd been raised in Texas and so I was really uh, nervous about it all and prayerful and there was a family that had a significant need that I heard about at the church that I was attending and I remember just thinking about what I had and how little it was and how we were literally almost out of food, me and my, my college age roommates, you know, it was tight. And I remember just sensing God's spirit in my own life. And I don't do this a lot, but I just sense like you need to give to this family that's in need and you need to trust me that I'm going to take care of things. And I remember that, that moment. Now, we're not talking about a lot of money, right? But I remember looking at my wallet, you know, like a few dollars that I had there and, and, and being like, uh, and I just did it. And then what I'll never forget is, is when we got back to our apartment, we walked up to the door and there was all this food sitting at our door, several hundred dollars worth of food. And I said, who, did anybody tell anybody that we we're really running low on food and that things were tough right now in our little situation. And all my friends were like, no, I didn't. I mean, we don't know where it came from. I still to this day don't know where it came from. But I know that God started a journey in my heart that night. And what he showed me is, listen, Judd, generosity is the way and it is more blessed to give than to receive and I will provide for your needs and more. That's the beginning for me of a faith journey that's continued on over the years. Many of you are on that journey. Many more of you are just beginning that journey, and it just doesn't get better than this. Let me share with you some encouragement from uh, the Bible. I want to share with you from a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul is writing about what it means to really live with a generous heart and a generous mindset. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. And there's a lot here. First of all, it says that we know the generous grace of Jesus, though he was rich. Some scholars say that's pointing back to Jesus' preexistence before he was God incarnate on earth, that he was rich. Other scholars take a more literal approach and imply that, that Jesus may have actually come from some level of wealth in his family. And I've re recently read some pretty interesting sociological studies that would challenge the idea that Jesus just came from poverty, that, that maybe he did come from a family that had a little bit more. Either way, it's fascinating that he, for our sakes, became poor so that by his poverty, he could make you rich. And I think we all know when we read this that when it says he can make us rich, it's applying, it's, a, it's implying way more than our net worth. It's implying what does it mean to live richly, to be rich in all the things of God. If anybody knows, you know. That money, while it's important and a wonderful tool, in and of itself isn't enough to truly make you rich. So what does it mean when it says Jesus makes us rich? Well, I think one thing he challenges us to do is to remember God's riches. Remember all the riches of God in our lives. You know, I used to work out at uh, an old YMCA, and I'd go down there and I'd lift weights. And... Um, it was around the noon hour, there was nobody else there, and there was this one guy that would go in and work out, and he was huge, he was like the Hulk, and um, I mean, just huge, and, and it would just be he and I, and I remember one day, 
he looks over at me and he says, hey, will you spot me on the bench press? Now, I don't know if you know what it is to spot somebody or not, but just to, just to kind of square it up, like the idea is I, I would stand behind this guy as he's pushing weight up off his chest on the bench press, and I'm supposed to grab this bar and help get it up to the rest if he gets in trouble. He's just maxing out weight. So, so I'm like, uh, okay, I don't know what you say to a guy that big except yes. And, and so he begins to put weight on this bar. He puts all this weight on one side of the bar, then he puts all his weight on the other side of the bar, and he says, I'm just going to max out. I'm going to do a couple repetitions, okay? I'm I'm like, all right, got it, you know? And so he literally takes the bar up off the rest and the bar bends in the middle. I'm like, whoa, some serious stuff going on right now. He goes down, he does one rep, he goes down to do the second one. He gets about halfway up and he just stops. And he says, little help here. <laughs> I'm not, I'm dead serious. Now I know what I'm supposed to do when I'm going to spot somebody and they need a little help, right? I'm supposed to like move in, keep your back straight, bend your knees, you know, and and you want to grab the bar with this hand like this and come over the top and grab the bar with this hand like this and and you want to just sort of pull on that bar and bring it up, right? And I remember just pulling with everything I had and nothing happened. (laughs) Nothing. The bar drops a half inch. This guy says to me, a little help here. I'm like, I'm pulling again, I'm pulling. I says, he says, a little help. And I remember this moment of absolute defeat. I'm looking in his eyes and I'm like, that's all I got. I don't know, I can go get somebody at the front desk. You know, he's like holding this all this weight. I'm thinking, I'm going to kill this guy. And he's like a professional weightlifter. So he does this move that I've never seen, you know, uh, anybody do. It, it's a move that professional weightlifters have mastered if they get in trouble. Because he's got enough weight on there to, to seriously, like, crush his chest and do, do serious damage to himself. So he slides over to one side, drops, leaves his left arm up just high enough, drops his right arm where the bar comes and hits the bench and all the weight falls off that side and then lightning's fast and this is where a lot of guys break wrists and ribs and everything else that bar flies up to the left he slides over on the left side perfectly this the bar hits the bench all the weight comes off this all happened in a splash then he stood up and he throws the bar across the gym (laughs) he turned around and looked at me (laughs) I'm thinking I'm so dead right like it happened in an old YMCA he walks up to me and he's breathing really hard. He's doing this with his hands and he's, he says, we're going to work out together. You know what I said? Yes, sir. He <laughs> what else do you say after that, right? I'm like, yes, sir, we're going to work out together. So I started showing up. He says, meet me at 1230 tomorrow. So around 1230, I show up and we start working out together. And um, once he found out I was a follower of Jesus, he had a lot of fun with that. He's like, oh, you're one of those Jesus guys, are you? You know, and so we're working out and he'd lean in and say, give me three more if you really love Jesus. I'm like, oh, you want to make it about that, huh? I remember one time I'm doing like, like you know, dips and, and he says, give me seven more because that's the perfect number in the Bible. I'm like, what? You don't know what the perfect number in the Bible. Would you Google that on the way in? Like, what are you talking about? But. We had a good relationship. This guy worked me out so hard in my life that, I I mean, I remember walking out to my car and I couldn't hardly get the keys in the door. Have you ever had this experience? I couldn't hardly get the keys in in the ignition. I remember at night, one night, I literally could not lift my arms up. And I remember saying to my wife as it was bedtime, I said, Lori, would you please brush my teeth? (laughs) I cannot lift my arms. And he put me through so much pain. But there was this moment after about three months of doing this almost every day where I just walked in front of a mirror because I hadn't even really been paying attention. 
and I was in the best shape of my life. Don't, don't look now. It didn't last. <laughs> it was quick. It was short-lived. But I had to go through all of that. And if I didn't go through all of that, I would have never gotten to that place of physical fitness. And I think sometimes God takes us into his gym. God lets us enter into a place where we have more weight than we think we can bear, where we're dealing with more pressure than we think we can handle, where we have more weighing down on us than we ever imagined possible. And sometimes we're so worn out and we're so tired, we feel like we could barely lift our arms, much less face the challenges of the day. And it's in those moments, because listen, you learn more in two weeks in the valley than you will in two years on the mountaintop. You'll learn more in those difficult seasons, no matter how short, than you ever will in the good seasons, no matter how long. And it's in those seasons we've got to pause and remember God's riches. Remember God's generosity to us in our own life. As I look at Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, he's trying to challenge them to remember the generosity that God has shown them, to remember that God himself is the most valuable commodity in the Bible. The greatest treasure in the Bible isn't money, it isn't riches, it's, it's God, it's God himself. And often the things that we long for are the very things that God has so richly provided for us. Think about this, Romans 5, 5, we all long for love says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We all desire peace. Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. We all desire joy and happiness. Jesus says in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We need strength and endurance. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, we can do all things through him who strengthens us. We need power. 2 Peter 1.3, divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It's not that God will give us, but he's already given us everything pertaining to life and to godliness. We're rich in love. Because God loved us and chose us from the foundation of the world to be united with Christ as his followers. We're adopted into him and filled with his love. See, we already have these riches. We're rich in our relationship with God. We're rich in his grace and forgiveness. We're rich in faith. Philippians 4.19 says, This same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us. In Christ Jesus. He'll supply all of our needs from his glorious riches. To supply someone literally, uh, uh, it could be translated, to supply someone according. And in many ways, you think about God, you think about the amazing riches that he has. That's what he supplies us out of. And the way you access that, the way you discover that, isn't through just getting. It's through giving. It's through going on that journey with God. Remember who God says you are. Remember his riches. In fact, I did a little study through the New Testament, pulled together um, all the different places where I could find statements that are just you are statements in the New Testament. And so this is what the Bible says. This is who God says you are according to him. It says, you are my followers. You are my friends. 
You are children of God. You are children of light. You are members of God's family. You are holy and blameless, standing before God without a single fault. You are God's people, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You are branches that bear fruit. You are God's field. You are God's building. You are living stones in his temple. You are holy priests. You're a holy nation to show the goodness of God. You are a chosen people. You're God's workers. You're Christ's ambassadors. You're true ministers of God, united with Christ. You're a part of his body, living by the spirit. You are God's masterpiece. You are the faithful ones meant for better things. You are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable. You are looking forward to a home that is yet to come. You are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. You're set free from slavery to sin. You are truly free. That's who the Bible says you are when God sees you in Christ. Is that what you see? Is that what you see? Because you know what that describes to me? Somebody who's rich, somebody who's rich in every way, somebody who's living a rich life. That's so much more than the bank account. That's so much more than the stuff. That's so much more than everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. That's somebody who's realized it's more blessed to give than to receive, who's already received so much from God, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how heavy the weight is, we remember God's riches. That's what motivates our generosity to others. You know, several years ago, um, a 20-year-old young man in our church came to me and pitched an idea. He said, uh, Judd, I, I think there's a need for us to go into the prisons in Nevada and bring God into these prisons. He had done a little research and uh, talked to the chaplain at our local federal prison, not far from our, one of our campuses in the Las Vegas area. And the most they had ever had involved in the, in the, in the ministry at the prison was uh, 12, 12 people. So he said, I think we can do better than that. And he had had some rough years in high school and had seen some friends end up in prison and he knew like, this could be me, this could be anybody. So 20 years old, he says, I have, I have a dream. And you know what I thought when he, when, he, when he shared this dream with me? I thought, okay, that's good, that's great, but that is not gonna pay for itself. And I just tell you where my heart was. You know, I'm like, that's great, awesome, help the prisoners, great. <laughs> we don't have any money for that, bro. And... He went ahead anyway, and he started having conversations. And through a series of things, I think partly because of his youth, God opened all of these doors for him. And the next thing I know, he's meeting with the governor, and he's sitting down with the head of prisons, and he's got literally, like, we have a letter now, like, you can go into any prison in the state of Nevada. Like, all these things start happening. Resources start flowing to this thing. And so we go in, and, and, and we started... Um, basically launching addiction recovery programs inside prisons. And because we go in and launch these addiction recovery programs and it can lower the recidivism rate of people coming back into prison when they get out, which is about 70, 80% because of addiction, um, it makes the warden look good. And so as long as we do all those things, they'll let us come in and do church as well. And so we began to go in and by video do church services. Um, and now we're in several states doing these different services. He started an organization since then called God Behind Bars, partnering with uh, all kinds of churches in Florida, Colorado, Texas, to take their services into prisons and to help touch these inmates' lives. 
But I remember going to the first celebration we did at the Florence McClure Federal Penitentiary. And I walked in, and here's, it was a women's prison, so here's all these women. They would only let us set up uh, about 300 chairs because they don't want too many prisoners in one place at one time. And every seat's full, and every seat's full every, every weekend. It's amazing what God is doing. And I'm looking out at these women, and I had this moment because as I'm looking at them, they're, they're smiling and they're worshiping in their 20s and 30s and 40s, these women. But so many of them did not have front teeth. It, it struck me as really odd. Like all of these women, almost every one of them don't have a front tooth or sometimes multiple uh, gaps in their front teeth. And I remember just looking out at them. I thought, this is strange. So I reached over to the chaplain. I said, these ladies, um, I don't know how else to say this. I mean, they don't, they don't all have their front teeth. What's up with that? And the chaplain said, well, in Nevada, it is cheaper to go in and just pull the tooth than to fix it. And whatever's the cheapest dental method for whatever pain somebody's experiencing, that's what we do. And I said, so you're telling me (laughs) that we take people who are not going to be in here forever, who already don't have anything, and we pull their teeth, and then we drop them off and send them back out into the society to somehow get a job and get back on their feet and just make things work. He said, yeah, that's what we do. And I remember sitting there and I was, I was actually very angry because I was just thinking as I'm looking out at these beautiful women without their teeth, I was thinking how messed up the system is. And then it hit me that these women had a certain smile about them. If you were coming in from the outside to the prison, you would think that you would be very self-conscious about your smile and who you are. All these outsiders are now here in the prison. Every one of these women are smiling ear to ear, completely unselfconscious about the fact that they don't have all their teeth. It's like they could care less. And I began to sit back and I went from anger to just being overwhelmed at the goodness and the grace of God. I'm looking at all of these women as they sing and as they worship. And I called it the smile of the second chance. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose, doesn't matter who's watching. You know what they've experienced? The riches and the goodness and the grace of God in their lives. And it's changed them from top to bottom. And it no longer matters what others think. It no longer matters what others' perspective is. You know what matters? What God thinks and what his perspective is. And as I stood there, I thought, God, I need more of that in my own life. That's God's riches to us. And when we then remember God's riches, we're inspired to live richly with generosity. Live richly with generosity. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks to the Corinthians and he's he's writing because he's taking up an offering for these destitute Christians uh, in Jerusalem. And so he wants to inspire the Corinthians and he writes of these Macedonian Christians who took up this offering even though they were very poor. and then he moves on to this very practical challenge for the Corinthian Christians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11. He says, give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. 
And I look at this passage, it's such a beautiful reminder to live with generosity. Notice he says, give in proportion to what you have. Whatever God's blessed you with. Whatever you, giving is not about just duty and obligation. It's about opportunity and joy. That's what giving is about. It says give, give according to who, how God leads you to give. This is the great thing about this experience you're going to have over the next couple of days. Nobody's going to tell you who to give to and nobody's going to try to influence you and in how much to give. The only question is this. Will you take the time to pause and listen to how God might lead you to help who God might lead you to help? Isn't that the spirit of what we see Paul writing? To, he's saying, give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. I'm not saying you should make life hard on yourselves to make it easier on others. But he says, give out of the overflow of what God has blessed you with. Live richly with generosity toward others. I remember when I was in uh, Bible college and struggling and just trying to, to get through. I, I, I felt called to be a pastor and I was trying to work my way through school. And I remember this moment where I went down to the financial aid office and, and I was talking to them about loans and other things. And they said, uh, Judd, you're, uh, you don't owe anything. We don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, well, no, I owe thousands of dollars. You know, it's been, I mean, I've been trying to manage all this, but I owe. They said, no, you don't owe. It's been taken care of. So what, what do you mean? They said, no, it's been taken care of. Wow. So then about two years later, I'm back at the financial aid office. You know, I'm working through things. And they said, oh, no, you don't owe anything. It's been taken care of. My senior year, I'm back in the financial aid office seeing what else I might owe, you know, to finish paying for school. And they said, you don't owe anything. It's been taken care of. And all I knew to do was thank God and go on. And it was only later, years later, that I put it together. And I should have put it together a lot sooner. But my pastor from my home church would come into town and he would lead these little classes at this college or he would speak in the chapel. And every, year, every time he would come in, when he would leave, my account was zeroed out. Every time he came in, he would leave, that account was zeroed out. And I'm just, I saw him recently. He's in his 80s now. And every time I see him, I just tell him, thank you. That generosity not only did so much for me. He didn't have a lot of money, but it didn't matter. Because it, it wasn't about that. It was about the joy of giving. But here's what I found in my own life. Now, when I have students from our church, they're going to school and studying I like to do these little, I call them little dive bombs, but I cover my tracks a little better. <laughs> and I just go in and clear out their bill and then fly out and they'll never know, God, I hope, and I got the joy, I got the blessing. And I just go in and do my little thing and pull out. And I, you know why I do that? Because a pastor who didn't have very much for no glory or credit to himself came in and did that for me Generosity spreads generosity, which spreads generosity. That's where the joy is. You know, my father, um, 
A couple years ago, I got a call. He was in Amarillo, Texas, and uh, they said, hey, Judd, you need to come home. Your dad's not doing very well. My dad was 87 years old. He was uh, in his mid to late 40s when I came around, if you know what I'm saying. Um, he didn't talk to my mom for two weeks when she found out she was pregnant, um, and she didn't talk to him for even longer, <laughs> which I completely understand now as a dad. But my dad was a World War II vet. Um, he found God faithful in the horror of war. He came back to the States after fighting in the Battle of the Bulge and the whole deal. And uh, was a small business owner, started Will Heights Refrigeration Company in Texas and built that company up and went through the recession in the 70s, about lost it all, leveraged his home and everything that we had to keep it open as, as you do. And then had great years, you know, when things came back and He'd lost one child and raised four others. He'd been through a lot of things, but he was a godly man of character. When I went back, I walked in the hospital. He's got all these tubes coming out from, his, from him. And my mom had passed away two years earlier. They had celebrated 60 years of marriage together. And I knew he was, he was ready to go home. And so we're standing around his bed, my, my, myself, my brother, my two sisters, and all of a sudden he just opens his eyes and he's like aware and he looks up at us and acknowledges that we're all there. And, and this is what he says, it's about time we wrap this up. <laughs> and then he, boom, head back, eyes closed. A little while later, he got shocked by his defibrillator and he sat up and he thought it was keeping him alive. He thought it was restarting his heart. You know, it wasn't, but that's what he thought. And so he sat up and he looked at me and he says, you better get that heart doctor in here right now. He better turn this thing off. I paid him a lot of money and I should be dead by now. <laughs> Boom, he's out. That's how a master sergeant in the army gets ready to die, right? So the nurse comes out hospice people and they say, you need, to, you need to go in and you need to say your goodbyes. Many of you have been down that road with, with parents, with, with loved ones. Nothing really prepares you, right? Nothing gets you ready for that moment and for what to say. And I walked in that room and I'm looking at my dad laying there and he's out. I think he's totally out. I just, I grab his hand and for the longest time I just sit there. And then I just begin to thank him. I thanked him for being generous with me, for praying me through four years of drug addiction and not walking away from me, for uh, loving my mom and being a man of character, for following God faithfully in his life. I thanked him for being a great dad and confessed in that moment that I didn't know if I could ever be the kind of dad that he had been to me. <laughs> I think it was a little more direct than that. Like, I feel like a failure as a dad far too often, but I'm so thankful for the model that I had in you. And I remember I had this moment where he just opened his eyes, he looked at my sister and I, and he simply said, uh, you're good kids, I love you. I'm going for a walk in the sunshine. I'll see you on the other side. That was the last words he spoke. A few days later, he passed away in hospice. But I walked out of that hospital room and it's like since then, the, the ground has moved in my heart and in my life. What I realized so clearly is when you're on your deathbed, there's only a few things that matter. 
your relationship with God, your love for the people around your hospital bed, and your love for those that you've touched with God's love. I mean, that's it. It's a short list. And so your golf game, not that it was ever very good, but certainly in that moment you realize how inconsequential it is. Your hobbies, as important as they may be on your, on your final day, it's not the most important. Your degrees, as hard as you work to earn them and, and to accomplish those things, and impo- as important as it is to prepare you to do the things that, that you need to do in life on the last day, it's not the main thing. It's just God, the people around that bed, and the people you've touched with is love. And here's what I've been wrestling with in my life ever since that day. I've been wrestling with the fact that if that's what matters most then, then maybe it needs to matter more in my life today. That's part of what you're going to journey out over the next couple days. What does it mean to take the wealth, the stuff, the gifts, the abilities, the things that God has given us and steward them so that when we get to that day, we're not only ready to meet God, but we can celebrate the fact that we've loved others with his love, we've touched others, and there'll be a whole lot of people, either literally or symbolically, around your hospital bed because you've made an eternal difference in their lives. I think that's what the Bible's getting at when it says that through Christ, we can be made rich. We can learn how to live richly. Let's bow and pray together. God, thankful. we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your love and your kindness and your mercy to us every day. And God, we do pray that over the next several days through conversations, through dialogue, that we can make some new friends. I pray that some great relationships are fostered. God, I pray that joy is what's evident through all of these different conversations and interactions, that encouragement and support just flows, and that all of us can be reminded to make you the main thing. We thank you for generous giving for this sacred space where we can come together and people can have conversations without ulterior motives and without other layers except the joy and the thrill of following you in faith and living in your generosity. And we give you praise in Christ's name, amen. Thank you guys, God bless you.